Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome back to another episode of the Reliability Matters podcast. Thanks for being uh, in attendance today. I really appreciate you being here. And thanks also for um, the ever-growing subscription base. We're a little over, uh, we just passed 15,000 downloads. So thank you so much for being part of this podcast family. I really appreciate your support. Today, we'll be discussing fit-for-use solder paste uh, inspection. As I've repeatedly said many times in the show, in fact, I believe I even talked about it on the last episode, uh, it's often said that reliability problems begin at the printer. Our industry utilizes a lot of materials in order to produce a circuit assembly. If the material, specifically the solder paste, is out of spec, that can affect reliability. Unfortunately, in most cases, one cannot simply open a jar of solder paste and give it the smell test or quick vision test and determine uh, visually if the solder paste that they're applying to the stencil is actually fit for use or if it has gone bad um, or if it is out of spec. My guest today will discuss what solder paste fit for use is and uh, we'll talk about uh, ways to determine if it's fit for use is uh, there and to determine that right there on the production floor. My guest also on a completely unrelated topic but maybe the most interesting question I've ever asked on this show, uh, has experience in wearable, wearable electronics in temporary tattoos. You have not heard that subject on this show before. So um, that is definitely a first, and that's going to be the first question I ask. My guest today is Christopher Fredrickson, Director of Engineering at InSituware. Welcome, Christopher. Thanks for being my guest today. Thank you so much for having me. Having me. You're very welcome. Tell me, before we get into like the real stuff, like the important stuff, let's talk about the fun stuff. What in the world is um, a wearable tattoo? Tell me about it. Oh, that. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, and, and interesting, uh, that, that's more of just a like hobby project. So, what we've uh, have, I've gone through and done is uh, integrated some electronics into a temporary tattoo. Uh, so that you can control things like uh, like a TV remote type of a thing uh, in a, a wearable electronics uh, uh, device. So I'm picturing um, all <laughs> change the channel, change the channel. Uh, yeah. Oh, exactly, exactly. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of different interesting avenues and and uh, new new uh, applications that I always am interested in exploring. So. Uh, integrating electronics into a, a temporary tattoo. It was uh, based on a, a paper from MIT that I went through and replicated myself. So um, yeah, there's a, a it, it's an interesting um, uh, application. <laughs> interesting is uh, definitely an understatement. At some point in the future, maybe you'll come back on the show and give us a demonstration of a, a temporary tattoo. I'm sure you're not wearing one in your sleeve at this moment, right? Nope. <laughs> that would have been too much to ask. Okay. All right. Let's talk about the, the real stuff. Now. Well, that was real stuff, but let's talk about the uh, maybe less interesting but more important stuff on our, on our agenda today. You stated in a previous interview that your company is all about measuring materials in electronic manufacturing for quality control. What materials specifically are you measuring and what quality control uh, purpose uh, are you measuring uh, these materials for? 
Yeah, we focus on uh, measuring a, a wide array of different materials. So in particular, we've uh, focused on solder paste, conformal coatings um, at, at the start. We're also looking at adhesives and uh, uh, dye attach adhesives, other materials along that uh, line. And the, the focus that we take with a lot of these materials is to take different, uh, is to a, allow you to, to go through and measure that material where you're going to, to use it. So materials are very dynamic. Uh, a solder paste, if you expose it to a different humidity or different environment, uh, is a very dynamic material. So we're looking to expand the, the, the quality control uh, processes that can be done for these materials. Yeah, excellent. Um, let's talk about solder paste. That's the, you know, the most heavily promoted application of your product. Well, before we get into that, let's talk about Insituware. Um, where did it come from? What was the genesis of Insituware? You started uh, in 2019, I believe. Is that when the company was launched? Yeah, the company started, uh, it was around 2018, okay. uh, where we were rolling into the development. Uh, eventually, in the, the 20, start of the pandemic, uh, 2020. Yeah, I'm um, going to ask you about that. A, That's a, a great, product. great timing. January, I think you, your debut was at Apex Expo. I don't know, January, February, actually, I think it was, uh, right as the pandemic was starting, right? Great timing, yep. Christopher. Great timing, right? I'm sure. Well, but, but then again, if you can survive that, you can do anything, right? Yeah, it's if you can survive a pandemic, a product launch during a pandemic, then you can certainly make it on in any other um, environment. Uh, so what was the motivation to start this? Uh, obviously, people have been able to inspect solder paste materials, you know, quote unquote forever. Uh, what was the genesis to um, create a different method of, of doing that? Yeah, so the, the motivation behind uh, adding these materials control solutions was the the observation that there's quality there's uh, different controls for all of your different processes in, in manufacturing. So after printing, you have SPI. Uh, at, at the end of the process, you have AOI. And when you looked at all of the different steps in manufacturing, there seemed like there was this, this big gap when it comes to the incoming materials. So in the case of solder paste, you really just rely on what's on the, the label on the jar. But a lot of different factors can then influence that, that material. So the, the genesis of the company was that observation that uh, there's, there really is a gap on the shop floor uh, when it comes to, to monitoring and controlling the materials that are used in your process. So it sounds like the, the um, justification, the motivation, the genesis of this was to take a service which has formerly been available as an outsourced laboratory test and bring that in-house for um, in-house inspection with answers, you know, fairly immediately. Is that, is that a, a correct assessment? Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. When I think of sending stuff out to a laboratory, I think of a lot of expensive machines and um, engineers or technicians that are trained to interpret the data, you know, no one machine says, yeah, this is good, this is bad. It, it basically produces a bunch of data and someone has to know what they're looking at in order to interpret uh, whether that uh, material is good or bad or, or anywhere in between. Um, th this, 
this is a you know handheld device, uh, which we'll show in a few minutes, uh, that conducts an extraction of whatever elements, performs whatever tests it performs. I'll let you get into the details of that in a minute. Um, it, my first thought would be something that is done outside of a laboratory may not be as sensitive, may not be as full function, may not have a wide spectrum of analysis as you know, all the expensive hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment and very well-trained uh, scientists to interpret the data. Am I wrong there? Or tell me if there's any compromise on, on uh, accuracy or the quality of inspection when it's done in a handheld device versus a formal laboratory. Yeah, there certainly is uh, trade-offs in developing and, and uh, having a, a, a sensor in a handheld device versus what's available in a lab. And I, I think the, the biggest trade-off there is it limits the types of measurements, types of analyses that you can do. Whereas in, in a lab, uh, you can go through and run through the entire suite of tests that are spec'd in the IPC standard for solder paste and flux. Uh, but when you're trying to adapt that to a manufacturing floor, um, it, it's, it's prohibitive to go through that entire set of uh, uh, testing. So the, you have to limit the, the types of analyses that you're doing to ones that will work in that application shop floor uh, um, uh, well. So the technique that, that we end up using, electrochemical impedance spectroscopy, uh, can shift and adapt quite well to that shop floor uh, application without much trade-off in the, uh, the actual accuracy compared to the same test in a lab. Yeah, I'm showing on the screen right now. Uh, I'll let it loop one more time. Uh, go ahead and look at the screen and tell me what we're seeing here. It's going to start over in just a second. There, there's solder paste sample being put on some kind of test coupon and that would be inserted into the handheld device is that correct yep so when you're using the product you apply the solder paste onto our uh, test coupon uh, we call it a probe and then you plug it into the handheld unit and you can start the measurement and uh, get results on uh, the the eis or the the behavior of that solder paste is the machine determining, is the handheld machine determining uh, running all the tests or is it sending it to a, the equivalent of a cloud lab uh, to, to run all the tests? Or, you know, how much, how much number crunching is done in the hands of the operator versus just sending the data and letting the uh, results come back? It's a little bit of a mixture of both. So what we do is we do all of the data processing and analytics on the unit itself so that you can get the, the feedback and uh, a result very quickly. Um, but we do have a cloud backend that drives this uh, product as well, because having just that one number isn't really that meaningful. So it really needs to be compared against uh, a larger data set. So we use the, the cloud backend in order to do those sorts of comparisons. I would imagine that's important. Uh, again, I'm just hypothesizing here. I don't really know what I'm talking about. But I, you know, every pace is a little bit different. The formulations are a little bit different. Um, some of the results might be, might show that it's fit for use on brand A, but that same exact measurement might not be fit for use for brand B. So is one of the advantages of having a cloud-based uh, support mechanism that new solder paste can be evaluated on your end and fed into the computer um, so that it's relevant on the shop floor? Is that one of the... Uh, 
benefits of having a you know constantly updatable you know cloud-based uh, uh, laboratory, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what we go through and do is measure. Uh, we we kind of call it the solder paste torture test, where <laughs> we go through and uh, work the, the paste to failure, expose it at uh, high humidity, uh, low humidity, run it on a stencil printer. Uh, we go through, look at it at incoming and the like, uh, because every solder paste is a little bit different. Um, some are more sensitive to uh, exposure to, to high humidity than others. Uh, some, then they have very different uh, behavior when it comes to EIS values uh, as well. So we're looking at, uh, at things like the activity level of that paste in this uh, um, measurement, and that's different for each solder paste. So with it being cloud connected, we're able to go through, run that torture test, and then have the data available and uh, have some of, some of the insights gained from that available to anyone using the, the device. So it sounds like somebody in your lab has a full-time job of breaking solder paste in order to find out where the breaking point is, right? And that has to be done on every brand and every species within a brand of solder paste. Is that correct? That is correct. Yep. Well, it is a full-time job. <laughs> sounds like a fun job. Uh, what makes solder paste not fit for use? What are the, the, you know, if I, in the cleaning world, you know, I have a cleaning equipment business, and sometimes we'll give a demonstration on our stencil cleaner, uh, our ultrasonic stencil cleaner, and we'll grab some old expired paste out of the fridge and, you know, go to put it on a stencil. We're not printing anything, so we don't care if it's, it's fit for use. We want to make sure we can remove it. And, um, Sometimes we'll open a jar and it's just a brick. It's a total brick. All of it's so old. All of the volatiles, all of the flux components have made its way out. Uh, every time we open it, we lose some, and 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 it's just you know that's pretty obvious that there's no fit for use except maybe a you know uh, a fishing weight. But um, outside of the obvious, um, what are some of the things that we are specifically concerned about with solder paste and its fit for use? Yeah, there are really a few different uh, phenomenon that uh, we're concerned about when evaluating whether or not a solder paste is fit for use and uh, looking at data using this measurement. So that, that same phenomenon that you're talking about is does drive a lot of expiration of, of solder paste. So as you that solder paste is sitting in the jar at uh, in storage or once you pull it from storage, the you might not think about it at, at all times, but the, the activator in that solder paste is constantly reacting with the oxide layer on the, the solder powder. And from that, you build up, uh, build up metal salts in there that increase the viscosity. You can use up some of that activator in the, the paste, and it eventually will become a, a hardened mass. And you can get cold welding, a bunch of other uh, uh, issues with that solder paste. And a lot of that failure is driven by that reaction that's going on between the, the powder and the flux, uh, which drives its, its expiration and, and failure in storage. So what we end up doing with this uh, electrochemical impedance spectroscopy is we're able to look at and extract uh, information about that reaction that's occurring between the flux and powder in order to look at, uh, is this solder paste uh, too old, where it's it's might be less active, 
where the viscosity has changed slightly. So you can investigate defects like that, or even just uh, variation, um, variation lot to lot in the solder paste, uh, or other factors. In addition to, well, before I go there, yep. what would you consider the, you know, we're always there to catch mistakes. There'll be no shortage of business. We all have job security when it comes to solving problems, right? Uh, there'll always be problems in our industry, in any industry for that matter, but particularly ours because it moves at the speed of light, literally and figuratively. Um, with, with that said, what are, we can test to make sure we haven't made a mistake, you know, by letting the solder paste go bad. But what are, what are some of the methods to prevent solder paste from going bad based on the types of failures you see? And, uh, you know, what's the best practice to make sure that every time they run a test, it just tells them that everything is good? Yeah, you know, the uh, uh, best best preventative uh, measures that you can take are the ones that I think are really already well publicized and known. So the manufacturer's guidelines are really quite accurate when it comes to, to handling solder paste, where you want to ensure that it's, it's never heated up. Uh, you want to ensure it's, it's uh, kept at room temperature. Uh, don't open the solder paste cold. Uh, you stir it to, to homogenize it well. If you follow to the T everything that the solder paste manufacturers recommend, in, in general, in a lot of cases, it will perform quite well. But there are also there are plenty of areas where you can start to have uh, uh, start to, to run into issues where you start to deviate from that. So in shipping, that's uh, a very much an uncontrolled process at times. You can't track and, and monitor what's happening to the paste during shipping. And so you have a little bit less control there. Uh, same as during handling. So if, if you're following everything perfectly, uh, these materials really are quite, quite good. Um, but there's always the, uh, the, the traps along the way. Yeah. Can, because your machine, your tool has to know what solder paste it's inspecting, so it knows what benchmark to compare it to, can it also be used to ensure that the right jar was opened? You know, in other words, if uh, this is an obsolete example, but someone's running a lead-free or a lead flux for maybe some uh, old military application, and they open the wrong jar, or they or they put a RMA flux in the tester, and they were thinking they were running a a, um, a no clean or water soluble, can the, the tool also let them know that you know this is out of spec? It may be perfectly good, but it, will it be able to tell them that the uh, that the incorrect flux is being tested. Yeah, every solder paste really is uh, kind of has a characteristic different uh, phenomenon within it. So because of that, within the EIS data, you do see differences between different types of solder paste, and you can use it in order to detect: Did I grab the wrong jar, or uh, or, or was there an issue there where it's it's really the wrong material? Um, there are some limitations with that in that uh, some solder paste behave quite similarly right. and you won't be able to, to catch it in those issues. But uh, if, if the solder pastes are, are um, different enough, 
it can be used to catch uh, if you are using the wrong material. Right. It probably doesn't display a warning that you've picked up the wrong jar, stupid. It probably just will say it's out of spec, right? Or it's, it's failed. Uh, on that subject of what it says to the operator, you're collecting a lot of data. You're running probably several different types of tests and extrapolating and interpreting that data. How much, how little of all of that big data comes back to the operator? I mean, there's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. There are those who want to know the justification behind a fail, you know, and, and there are those that just tell me if it's good or bad. I don't care what. Um, so what types of information does it feed back to the operator uh, relative to the reason it is not in spec or not fit for use? Yeah, we really work to simplify uh, what's on the unit itself uh, for the operator in order to make it uh, use it at, so that they can use it as really a, a quick indication. So we distill a lot of that uh, analysis down to a couple different numbers that they can look at, uh, which we call the, the powder reactivity coefficient. It's that interaction between the, the flux and powder and uh, a flux coefficient, which is related to um, ion mobility in the flux. So conductivity in essence of that flux. So a lot of different failures of the solder paste will affect those numbers in different ways, but it allows the, the operator to just get that very quick indication. And a lot of the, the more advanced analysis we make available via a, a web application. So you can look at the all of the raw data and get that uh, additional insight. And what's the science behind this? It's, it's running some type of test. Does it run more than one test within a machine or does it run one test and then interprets many results from that one test? In, in a lot of these cases, it really depends on the, the specific measurement that we're doing. So we've built this out as a very modular device. So in the case of solder paste, uh, we're running a test called electrochemical impedance spectroscopy, where we're able to apply a very small AC signal into the solder paste and read the impedance back and, and do some uh, processing on that data in order to give information about the, the electrochemical and chemical reactions that are occurring within the solder paste. So in that case, it's, it's uh, you're doing one test and getting back a couple different uh, data points about that material, depending on the specific solder paste. Uh, in, in other cases, we have uh, other tests that are possible for other materials like conformal coating uh, that, that allow the, the operator to get different insights about that material. How do you handle custom solder paste? You, we talked about, you know, you have the torture test, you have someone in your lab who's, who goes around and gets samples of solder paste and then beats them to death, determines where, at what point it dies. Um, some solder paste is, is customized for very specific applications. Uh, does that have to be sent to your lab first so that you could torture it and, and come up with a, a unique identifier for that? Um, or are there, are there models that would work for a range of customized paste? Yeah, what we have done when it comes to uh, customized solder paste is we've had that uh, sample of that material sent in and we've run through that uh, torture test on that, that paste as well. Uh, you can go through and run the, the measurement on a custom paste uh, without 
going through and, and doing that torture test, you just lack some of the, the additional context surrounding that measurement. So you'll get back a number on what's in essence, how active is this solder paste, but you lack the context of, is this a good value or is it uh, bad? So what you can, what, what we can offer as well, if there's certain cases where, uh, where we can't get it in um, or, or uh, we're not able to, to receive a sample, um, they can still go through and, and make the measurement on that material, but they just lack some of that context and would have to, to back it up using a, a different set of data, maybe SPI data in their facility or, or other uh, process um, or, or other data that they might have. One of the common, at least from my experience, one of the common failures of a paste um, is something completely solvable. It's just not mixed well enough before it's put into the stencil printer. Uh, and, you know, sometimes when you open a jar of paste, there's a little oily film on the top, you know, the, as some of the ingredients separate. That doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it needs to be mixed up. Uh, does your tool produce a, an answer that would indicate, for example, it's out of spec for this reason, you know, which is common with not being mixed? Or is it just a green pass, a red fail? And, you know, going back to my earlier question about how much of that data is given to the customer, um, knowing that these are probably not chemical engineers or, you know, uh, physicists or whatever that are, that are interpreting these results uh, on the shop floor, nor should they be, um, how much of that information is useful to determine whether they throw it away or that they, you know, try and, and uh, restore its fit for use? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think in this case, there's a lot of, there's a few different uh, ways that you can use the, the electrochemical impedance spectroscopy for quality control. So in the case of, you, you never want uh, the measurement on the, the factory floor in order to, to be too complicated for the, the operator there. But these materials really are quite dynamic and, and complicated. And so in the, when using this quality control tool for the, the application of making sure that the solder paste uh, is stirred fully, uh, what you can go through and do is set up control limits for your process uh, for that solder paste where you're always making the measurement post-stirring and you can look at how consistent was that process. So it's a single measurement, but it can be used in a couple different ways. You can measure the, the material uh, just as it was received, but you'll get more variation due to the, the separation of the flux you can measure it post-stirring and you'll be sensitive to, to both the material variation, but also the stirring process. So if it wasn't stirred fully, um, it'll be out of spec if you're uh, setting it up that way. You can continue to stir it, see how that measurement changes to see if you're within your process window. Um, stirring absolutely is, is one of the areas where there still is a lot of, uh, a lot of manual processes there that don't have don't have any sort of quality control step involved yeah it's frequently so, a very subjective process right bob versus amy 
you know, if Bob has a hot date on a Friday night, he's not going to stir it for as long as Amy might if she's sitting home watching TV, right? So, um, and, and I know there are, there's equipment that can stir pace for you. You know, I don't know, they're like a high-tech paint shakers or something, but they can, they can do it. But it's usually done by an operator. Um, and, um, and then, you know, jar put back closed and put back in the fridge for another day. One of the things that I found interesting in, in one of your uh, company's prior uh, interviews was the statement was made uh, that in your cloud laboratory that you use um, AI and machine learning. Um, tell me what that means relative in this context. That AI is a big word that's used by a lot of people. You know, it's like in the 70s, everything was turbo. You know, what, it was just a marketing term, right? And I think, not in your case, but I, whenever I hear artificial intelligence, I always kind of roll my eyes a little bit because, you know, everyone says they're, they're doing AI and very few people are doing AI. I believe in your industry, you probably are. Uh, but uh, tell me what um, machine intelligence and AI means in this context. Yeah, in, in a lot of our case, uh, what we've gone through and done is focused on building out a platform where we can go through and interpret and uh, uh, gain insights from a large volume of data. So AI really can mean quite a lot of different uh, different things to different people. So the way that we look at this and interpret it is more the, the machine learning point of view where it's and data analytics side, where you have the question of what insights can you gain from this large set of data? So some of the things that we've done just as an example um, is in, in looking through, now that uh, we have a couple hundred thousand measurements of, of these different materials in our database, and you want to gain insights and, and value from that data. And so you can do things be, because the, it's, it's built up in a way that you can easily access that data and the like uh, in order to provide new insights that wouldn't otherwise be possible. So um, in the case of, of uh, adding machine learning to this product, um, we are able to, to release new functionality that, that does things like Let's say you have a, a jar of solder paste and you want to gain some insights from that. Um, you can go through and, and take a sample of it and get back things like a predicted flux designator for that material. Things like uh, what's the predicted stencil life of that material. So by building up this large set of, of data and building really a platform that allows us to easily interpret and analyze that data, we can provide new insights to the user of the, the device. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, do you recommend that a test be performed every time a jar of solder paste is opened? Does that make sense? It, how long does the test take? The, the test takes about uh, three and a half minutes. So a quick measurement of the solder paste for each new jar uh, is, gives you quite a lot of data that you can use to confirm that your processes are in control. So that is, uh, take a sample of the, the solder paste, uh, each jar before you use it is a recommended uh, process. Uh, but also you can do things like uh, measure it at um, eight hours on the printer to look at, can I get more stencil life out of this material uh, as an example? Um, or uh, measurements throughout the day to look at how it's changing. I don't want to get into your pricing model, but I'm just curious, does every test consume a part? Or is that, um, you know, going back to that video, uh, oops, right, right here, 
that little part right there, is that used one time or is it cleaned off and, and used again? Uh, for the solder paste measurement, that coupon uh, is reusable. So okay. you can clean it off and uh, reuse it for uh, our recommendations about up to a week um, before it starts to, to degrade the, the gold coating on the surface. Um, so that's reusable, but it, it depends on the specific measurement that we're making as well. So there are cases where it can be reused for a week or so, and then there are other cases where you need a fresh test coupon or cartridge, whatever it's called, um, each time, depending upon what they're testing for, what they're testing. Is that the correct assessment? Yep, exactly. So as an example for conformal coating measurements, it's a little bit difficult because the, the coating cures onto the probe. Uh, to right, it conformally coats the probe, doesn't it? Yes, it does conformally coat the probe. Yes. <laughs> yep, so that in that case, it doesn't end up being reusable. Solder paste, uh, you can reuse it quite a lot without any problems. Uh, only issue, some very active uh, solder paste will start to eat away at the surface much more quickly than others. Sure. Um, so it, it depends on the specific measurement. Right, and depending on the cost of each probe, that would determine whether it makes sense internally to test every time a, a jar is opened or, or, or maybe when a new jar is opened or maybe once a week, whatever, whatever the case may be. That's an internal justification, I guess. Uh, uh, you know, a, a number of years ago, X-Ray was brought into our industry. And they, uh, our industry started using X-Ray when BGAs came on the scene because there was really no way to inspect the quality of a solder joint under a BGA outside of x-ray. In the early days, they had these, um, basically these uh, microscopes with oblique viewers, you know, very expensive viewers that would peek underneath the component and, and see as far into it as you can get. But clearly, you're only seeing the, you know, the, the outer bands of the balls. And, and what was discovered through x-ray was they had a voiding problem. No one knew they had a voiding problem until x-ray showed up. It was a problem that was just unrecognized as a problem until X-ray showed up. Do you think that this technology, the fact that you're putting the ability to analyze solder paste for fit for use in the hands of many, many, many more people potentially uh, that would normally not send out on a regular basis to a laboratory, um, they're probably discovering problems they've had all along but just didn't realize it. Um, so how big of a problem, based on your experience, uh, is out of spec solder paste. Is it bigger than we think it is? Well, I, I think uh, it the solder paste that is coming from the manufacturer in general is quite good. But where we see a lot of new insights and uh, um, gaps is just how dynamic these materials are. So if you're running um, uh, in, in your environment, if your humidity isn't really well controlled, um, you can get quite a lot of variation in that material. And it can be uh, uh, the, the root cause of, of quite a few defects in the printing process. So one interesting insight is there, there really is quite a lot of uh, uh, variation caused by humidity, handling, things like that, that is just right now not really well controlled. So I think as you, if, if, uh, as you end up adding more quality control processes to the, the solder paste and to these other materials, 
uh, you can really start to see more variation than, than maybe you might have, have thought initially. A few months before the official product launch, I think this was probably September of 2019 in Chicago, um, your colleague and father, uh, Michael Fredrickson, uh, talked about um, the plan to come up with a, an application that would test for cleanliness a, on a localized basis. I know that's not launched yet. Is that something that's uh, in your crystal ball for the future? Yep, absolutely. So the way we have built this product is to be very modular so that we can reuse the same sort of sensors for many different applications. So localized cleanliness has, has been one that has come up quite a few different times. And we're, we're currently investigating that as a new additional module, um, along with quite a few other different uh, measurements of adhesives, things like of that nature. That would be very exciting. Uh, me being in the cleaning business, it would be very exciting. There are methods for localized testing uh, that are kind of a hybrid on the shop floor and then something sent to a lab. It would be very interesting to see if, if you guys could pull that off and, and actually have the results come back, not just a pass-fail or volume of contamination at a specific location, but identification of that contamination. That's something that uh, I think Michael mentioned uh, they had hoped to do. So I'm, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be your cheerleader along the, the uh, sidelines and, and hope that that happens. And then when and if that does happen, we'll certainly bring you back on the show because that's a whole nother level of questions for you there. Um, so you start, as, I, as we talked about earlier, you started this company um, literally the, the same month the pandemic was you know, discovered and announced to the world. Uh, the pandemic has been very disruptive to many businesses in, in that, um, Probably for the electronics world, not so much in terms of the amount of business out there that, you know, we, we're definitely an essential industry and, and uh, most EMS providers marched on. You know, they had plenty of work. Uh, the, 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 the struggles, the challenges were very logistical and, you know, you couldn't go out and see people. You couldn't knock on doors. You couldn't sit in conference rooms. You couldn't um, attend uh, symposiums or present at symposiums because there really were none except a few virtual ones. Um, and in, in the world of a product launch, you do all of that, right? So how challenging was the, um, the pandemic and uh, what did you do to kind of mitigate the challenges of not being able to put yourself and the product in the hands of, of users? Yeah, the, the pandemic was very challenging, as, um, especially at the start where our, our product launch was pretty much timed with the start of the pandemic. And I think what's been most difficult is just how wide reaching it is. So at the, at the very start, um, it's supply chain disruptions uh, and then not being able to go visit different companies and, and the like. And now we have the, the global chip shortage. So each each um the the pandemic has really caused quite a few different logistical uh challenges throughout and we've had to to tackle them in a couple different ways so um not being able to to go out and visit companies in person uh, we've gotten very good at giving virtual product demonstrations and uh going through and and giving virtual evaluations where we ship out a unit to to companies um, I think it's there's there's uh, uh, still going to be quite a few 
challenges to overcome, and it's it's not really a replacement for a, a face-to-face conversation, uh, face-to-face meeting. But uh, like everyone, everyone else out there, you uh, make do with make the best with. Uh, Cards are dealt. <laughs> right. And it's a bit of a level playing field because there's no one else out there knocking on those doors either. Right. And if they were, the doors aren't being opened. So, um, <laughs> but we're starting to see a little light at the end of the tunnel, even with this, you know, third wave or whatever, whatever it's being called. We are seeing a little light. At least there are some live conferences now um, coming up in November, SMT AI and then Apex uh, in the winter in, in uh, January or so of next year. So, high hopes for those. Maybe we can get back out and get face-to-face with customers. It's nice to see organic material in front of us rather than pixels, right? It's, it's, a, it's a nice change. Let's talk about conformal coating materials. Um, that's also a subject, in addition to cleaning, conformal coating is you know, kind of close to me because a lot of reasons people clean is for good adhesion of conformal coat. You want that surface energy of the laminate to be very low so you have good adhesion. Um, I understand that there's also a function, I think it's a newer application for your machine uh, that will allow um, you to measure the function uh, to measure basically conformal coatings before applications. Uh, tell me more about that, that process. What is it looking for? What is it telling you is wrong with uh, the conformal coating material? Yeah, absolutely. So what we do for conformal coating measurements is we're using a technique called low frequency dielectric spectroscopy. So what this tells you is you're, we're looking at the impedance of that conformal coating that varies depending on uh, how it's thinned, for instance. So you can go through and use this measurement to understand if that coating has been thinned appropriately, if you're doing that in your process, uh, to make sure that the solids content is correct. And it's also sensitive to things like the, the conformal coating being degraded uh, and and partially cured in the container or contamination with uh, moisture, for instance. So we're using this this low frequency dielectric spectroscopy measurement to look at a a couple of different um, phenomenon that that occur within that coating. And are you able to measure or or evaluate any type of conformal coatings from acrylics to silicones to perylenes to um, anywhere in between? Or is it a specific species of conformal coating? It, it, there are some limitations with the, the technique where the coating can't be for perylenes. Uh, you can't really make a measurement of that, uh, that, that base material initially. So you're not able to, to, to measure perylene coatings. Uh, some silicones are, it's a little bit too resistive to make that measurement and you're not really thinning them in a lot of applications. So it's uh, uh, urethanes and acrylics are most common and uh, kind of best for this application. Epoxies uh, as, as well can be used. And is it mainly looking at um, the effectiveness of the, th- is it looking at like in another application, it would be specific gravity, you know, when you thin something. I know this isn't necessarily specific gravity, but are you just making sure it's at the proper concentration or are there other other factors that would cause a, a material to go out of out of spec the uh concentration well in with a lot of these uh conformal coatings it's it is that um uh that thinning step that i think has the most variation in that material so it, it with um in a lot of cases that's still a, a manual process so 
what we're able to do is uh, monitor that process as well. Um, but the other other factors, um, like if it's exposed to the environment um, and you have absorption of moisture, which can impact the, the moisture cure of some of these conformal coatings, or um, if it's heated up too much in storage, you can start to see degradation of the, uh, the, the coating itself. So it, it's a single measurement where we're looking at that impedance, but depending on a couple, it, it's sensitive to a couple different issues that can arise with that coating. Um, going back to the subject of cleaning and cleanliness evaluation, one of the reasons to perform a cleanliness test is to try and get a you know, crystal ball look at whether the conformal coat would adhere properly. Uh, there are specific types of testers that uh, basically, you know, do a dyne test, basically, automated dyne test um, to see uh, what the um, surface energy is on a, on a particular surface. Do you see that as, I see that as a, something that could easily go into a handheld device that would inject a solution, DI water or whatever, um, and, and then optically measure the refraction based on how much it's spread out. Do you see that as uh, something in your wheelhouse in the future? It's certainly something that uh, we'll evaluate and whether or not we'll, we'll add it to the Mark I, I think I'm not entirely sure about it at this point, but uh, that tester as well, going through and, and measuring the surface energy automatically really is a wonderful tool uh, to, to ensure that the, the coding will be adhered appropriately. Um, it, depending on, we, we may, it, it seems like it's uh, something that would work well in a handheld tool and, and we're always open to, to adding new modules. Well, I'll send you a list of all the things I'd like to see. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right? yeah. I won't be R&D, but I'll be, uh, I'll be market development. You know, I, there's a lot of things I'd like to see in a handheld tool. Um, so I think the last question is, and you brought this question on yourself. You, you, you um, called your, your product the Mark I, which just tells me that, Somewhere in the future, there's going to be a Mark II, Mark III, Mark IV, you know, like an iPhone. You know, I think, they're, I think today they just released the iPhone 13 or whatever they decided to call it. Uh, will there be a Mark II? Will there be a Mark III? Is that the, the plan or is it just the Mark I with uh, 101 uses? <laughs> there will absolutely be new Mark I, new, well, new um, uh, modules. Mm -hmm. Uh, adding the, the Mark II down the line, Mark III. Uh, we're building this out as a very modular, reusable platform. So the modules will always work with the previous, with new hardware and the like. So as we continue on, uh, develop new, new hardware, we'll have a Mark II, but we'll also have new Insight modules and new modules that can plug in to do different sorts of measurements. So to really um, make it a, a very valuable and, and multi-purpose platform. Excellent. Um, again, I, I usually ask one or two final questions. So it, one's a pre-final question. Maybe this is the final question, we'll see. Um, again, not wanting to get into details of your pricing, uh, that's between you and your customer. Um, but uh, is, is some of this a subscription model or do they, do they buy a piece of equipment, a piece of hardware one time and then run as many tests that they could do over the life of the equipment? Uh, for, for the price they paid for the equipment? Or is it a, you know, you do have a lot of stuff going on in the cloud. You do have a lot of investment that you continually make. You have to keep updating your databases of, of sample materials. Um, it, it, 
it seems like if I bought a machine tomorrow and I'm still using it 10 years from now, I'm getting very exceptional value uh, that I'm not paying for. Um, but is there some type of model that, that, um, that the customer would have to, uh, like a subscription or a fee per use or, or something like that without getting into specifics of pricing? Yeah, yeah, we've opted for um, a one-time, you, you purchase the unit wow. and continue to get value from it uh, over the subscription model um, to, to be, uh, we, we think that uh, it's, it's better for the end customer when they can just make a, a one-time purchase um, and continue to, to gain value. Um, we have gone through and added other uh, extended warranty services other uh, things right. where they can get uh, added value from our lab uh, with expert supports from our material scientists and things of, of that nature. But the Mark One itself, um, it's just a one-time purchase upfront. Oh, that's great. I, I try really hard not to promote products on the show. Um, I try and keep it as non-commercial and as technically relevant as possible. Um, so thanks for following that. Um, but I do find that... It, uh, a really good value because if I buy a machine in 2021 and it's still working in 2026, chances are I'm using a different material in 2026 because of the evolution of these materials. So it's, it's good to know that um, it's still relevant to me. It's not how long a machine physically lasts. It's how long it's relevant uh, for. And um, that model works very well in terms of value um, because I know that I'm not just buying a, a picture of today's um, material sets. I'm, I'm buying a picture of today's material sets and tomorrow's material sets, which is, uh, represents a good value for an end user in any model, whether it's this or any other similar type of thing. Um, you know, when we build cleaning machines, our, you know, we have two goals. Our goal is that the, the actual hardware of the machine will last 10 or 15 years, that you know, before it just wears out, right? And, um, but more important that, that we can maintain as many years of relevancy as possible. There's no sense buying a $70,000 piece of hardware and then in three years, you can't use it anymore. You know, it's like selling eight track tapes, you know, today. It's like, you know, great, but where, where are you gonna play them, right? So um, I, I like that, that model. Um, well, that's it, you've answered uh, my questions. Uh, I think it's a, a fascinating, um, sector in our market uh, to be able to deliver kind of a laboratory into the hands of, you know, everyday users. Um, I, I think from many vantage points, there's a, there's a, it's a very fascinating uh, business model that, that you put together. And I'll, I'll definitely look forward to seeing future modules uh, come out uh, and, um, you know, with an emphasis on cleanliness testing and surface analysis and things like that. Uh, are there any other applications today besides, fit for use, solder paste, and conformal coating materials. Are there any other applications? See, I told you that was never the last question. Are there any applications that, that we've missed that today the machine is suitable for? Today, nope, that's it. Uh, it's solder paste, conformal coating, um, constantly releasing new uh, functionality, though, and working on the next thing. Excellent. Well, uh, Christopher, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. How is it working with your father? How is it in the family business? It's always, yeah, I used to work with my dad many, many years ago. And I'm not going to put you too much on the spot, but um, um, what, what drug you into this family business? Just out of morbid curiosity. 
you know, it it's it wasn't something that I was originally expecting, to to be honest. So at the time, um, I was going through and doing a grad program uh, focused on machine learning and, and data analytics. And so I've done a, a bunch of different uh, built things like a, a scanning, tunneling microscope and and uh, done data analysis, uh, have, have focused on certain material, measuring different materials, things like that, um, just throughout schooling. And at the time when he was starting this, it just ended up being a perfect fit. So I came right. on board as the, the first engineer uh, working on the, the initial conception of the product, and it has just evolved from there. Excellent. You got sucked in. You got sucked yeah. in. And now you're here forever. That's the way this industry works. Well, I'll look yep. forward to, I think you're planning on being, I'm not sure if this show is going to air uh, before. I don't think it's going to air before the S&T AI show. However, if you're watching this or hearing this, uh, maybe you had a chance to stop by. I think you guys are going to be there, right? Uh, yep. You have, we'll you have a, booth, a booth there? Are you speaking yep, we'll be, there? Is your company speaking there? Uh, so we'll be speaking at SMTAI uh, and have a booth there. So we have uh, a paper looking at correlations between SPI and the EIS measurement, um, as well as the booth there and uh, also a booth at Apex. Excellent. Well, since this is probably going to air after the show has completed, uh, for those of you who may have missed that presentation, um, Many of the presentations are going to be available virtually on demand, uh, I believe, after November 15th. So um, if, you, if you missed the live performance, you can see the encore performance of Insituare's uh, product uh, information and, uh, or technical paper. Uh, Christopher, once again, I think I've asked my final, final question. So thanks for being my guest today. It's exceptionally informative, and uh, I wish you, you and your company all the luck in the future. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for listening or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and so many more. Also, be sure to check out my other podcasts, including the Concept to Creation podcast, where I feature conversations with entrepreneurs within the electronic assembly space, and the Innovations and Technology podcast, where we discuss innovative products within our industry. All three shows are also available in video format. Check out the Reliability Matters or Concept to Creation or Innovations in Technology podcasts on YouTube. Just search the show's name and you can find all three shows. Or go to MikeConrad.com. That's Conrad with the K. All three shows also appear there. Again, thanks for being part of my podcast family. I appreciate you being here. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay happy. And of course, keep doing it right. See you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.